Today, we'll talk about nuclear weapons and, in particular, the Los Alamos Nuclear Lab, which has set for itself a new industrial mission. For the first time, it is embarking on the production of nuclear weapon cores. At the same time, the U.S. government is committed to an upgrade and modernization of its nuclear weapons arsenal. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. If you enjoy or rely on this show or both, please show your support by subscribing to our show at patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program. We can't do this show without the support of those who rely and like this show and who contribute to the show by becoming subscribers. Go to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program. Today, we're talking once again with Greg Mello, Greg is a co-founder and executive director of the Los Alamos Study Group. Greg Mello, welcome back. Thanks very much, Brian. Glad to be there. Well, it's 2023. The Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, I believe, was signed in, I think, in 1969. It committed existing nuclear powers to get rid of their nuclear weapons over time. That was the quid pro quo. And in exchange, non-nuclear powers would not seek to acquire nuclear weapons. The nuclear powers, and in particular the United States, but not it alone, is not getting rid of its nuclear weapons. In fact, it's modernizing, upgrading, and seeking to make nuclear weapons more usable. Here we are, maybe 60 years after the signing of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Modernization of nuclear weapons, Greg, it's a violation of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, the letter and the spirit of it. But the Obama administration was committed to it. The Trump administration is committed to it. And clearly the Biden administration is committed to it. What's the new story in Los Alamos and about the creation of this new industrial mission? Let's talk about that. Sure. So Obama, as you said, more or less created this modernization program as part of a deal with Congress to get the New START treaty ratified. but. He didn't have any difficulty making that deal. He could have signed off at the time on a one-third cut to the U.S. nuclear arsenal. This had been prepared for him by the Joint Chiefs and the Department of Defense. The military was all on board with it, while Obama didn't do it. So I think that's important to say. He was worried about looking weak. Just for our audience, he was trying to get the START Treaty signed. What is the START Treaty? The New START Treaty was thought to be just an extension, more or less, of the previous START Treaty. It limits the size of the deployed strategic arsenals of the United States and Russia and provides for mutual inspections. The inspections are now not happening. The treaty still exists. It's hanging by a thread, and it will expire in 2026. So. Right now, with U.S.-Russian relations in the toilet for the foreseeable future, the that's the last remaining treaty between the U.S. and Russia. Yeah, so Obama wanted to get the treaty done. He wanted to have this new arms agreement with Russia. But because he's a Democrat, because he's not part of the you know organized and identified right wing, he doesn't want to appear weak. And so instead of reducing the nuclear arsenal, he takes a different path. Correct. So modernization, he signed off on this gigantic program. It's more than a trillion and a half if you include the deployment of existing weapons. If you include cleanup of the mess that's involved, it's more than $2 trillion with deployment and maintenance of the weapons we have at the same time as modernizing them. So in the modernization plan, 
one of the biggest and most difficult part of this is reconstituting the ability to make the plutonium cores of nuclear weapons. Now, these last a long time, at least 80 years from manufacture, maybe longer. They don't have to be replaced right now, but without a factory to make them, the national security establishment in both parties is very nervous and they can't make new kinds of weapons. They would like to make a new weapon for the ICBMs and they want to make them in large quantity. They could use perfectly good cores, they're called pits, perfectly good pits they have. They have about 530 of these perfectly good ones for this purpose, but they would like to be able to put three warheads on as many as 450 missiles with some spares. And so they need to make more and they need to set up a factory to do this. And they want to do it right now because they believe that there's some kind of crisis. It's not a crisis. They have other motives. So let's talk about the numbers, just so people can wrap their head around it. Three different warheads per missile. Those are nuclear warheads and how many missiles? Well, we have uh, 450 ICBMs. This is just the ICBM leg of the U.S. nuclear deterrent. There are 400 deployed, 50 in reserve, and they have enough pits to make new warheads for all these missiles, they do not even have to make new warheads, but they would like to do that. But they don't have enough pits to make three warheads per missile. And they would like to be able to threaten Russia and China by saying, be nice, do what we say, or we will upload another two warheads on each of these missiles. And then we'll be able to take out more of your forces and or cities. We know from the visuals and the documentation of what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki that that one atomic bomb on each city incinerated the city. Hundreds of thousands of people died either immediately or soon thereafter because of radiation poisoning. So that's two bombs. Now you're talking about 400 missiles, ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, missiles that can be launched and reach their target thousands of miles away. And there's 400 nuclear warheads on these missiles. If the Pentagon gets its way and can put three per warhead, that's 1,200 nuclear warheads. Let's just talk about what the magnitude is of this violence, of this potential violence, let's say in comparison, say, to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, those two single bombs. The yield of these warheads is over 20 times what the yield of the Hiroshima bomb was. So the effects are enormously greater. At these larger explosive yields, what dominates is the heat. So this is like bringing the sun down on top of the city. This is very, very hot. And the thermal radiation extends farther out than the blast, which wasn't the case at Hiroshima or Nagasaki. So everything in the city catches on fire all at once. And then this makes a gigantic updraft strong enough to carry cars and things like that, and inrushing hurricane force winds. And the smoke of all this is then wafted very high above all the weather into the stratosphere. It punches right out through the troposphere and goes up above the weather where the soot stays for a long period of time. And there's more energy in all the flammable things in a city than there is in the bomb, quite a lot more. So every flammable thing will burn up. So then the world becomes covered with a black shroud and everyone freezes and starves. So that's basically the scenario. That's nuclear winter. It's nuclear winter. And we have to realize just how fragile all of our arrangements are. We We hear a lot about supply chain issues and so forth. But even a few nuclear weapons at key nodes in a country like the United States would 
bring down our economy in a catastrophic domino of of suffering. And you know, we depend on very fragile supply chains and other arrangements. So it's you know one of these. You can tailor a weapon. Russia can. We can to explode high above and take out all the electrical and electronic equipment for hundreds of miles, including the safety systems of nuclear reactors, all the solar systems, you know, your communication systems. So, you know, that's perfectly feasible. It may well be part of the war plan. I have no idea. The top tier of the Nazi officialdom was put on trial at Nuremberg and convicted of war crimes, crimes against humanity, crimes against peace. They're war criminals, and they're convicted basically of the crime of genocide. Six million Jews and other assorted peoples died at the hands of the Nazis. So that's genocide, the destruction of a people in whole or in part. These are genocidal weapons. Absolutely. I mean, six million dead. Let's talk about what casualties would look like. Now, the U.S. has 400 intercontinental ballistic missiles with warheads that are 20 times greater in yield than the two bombs that destroyed the cities of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Let's say 10%, let's say 40 of those 400 ICBMs with bombs 20 times stronger than Hiroshima bomb, if they were used... What are we talking about in terms of casualties? Tens of millions. And it's, you know, it depends on where they land. And lest we forget, there are even larger numbers of warheads deployed on submarines at sea and then in bombers. So there's about 5,700 intact nuclear weapons in the United States. Of those, 3,800 are deployed or in reserve. Of those, about 2,450 are deployed. And they're deployed in ICBM silos, in bomber bases, and undersea. The new start figure is, what is it, 1,800? But new start counts each bomber as one warhead. And actually, they can carry 20. So there's a triad. There's three legs to the U.S. military nuclear structure. One is land-based missiles. So the ICBM, the intercontinental ballistic missiles, they can go long distances. In the past, the U.S. has deployed intermediate-range missiles. I don't know if they've also deployed short-range missiles. You can tell us that. But there were treaties signed that barred or banned intermediate nuclear range missiles. That was a treaty signed by Gorbachev and Reagan in 1986. Then you have the Air Force. You have the B-1 bomber, the B-2 bomber, the B-52 bombers. These are airplanes that carry nuclear weapons. So that's the second leg of the triad. And then the third is underwater, the submarines, the Trident submarines. Maybe there are other submarines I want to ask you about the submarines. What is a a Trident submarine or whatever the latest version is of the U.S. nuclear submarine? How many missiles does it carry? I believe it's 24. And it's been a while since I've looked at that. I think it's 24. And each of those missiles can carry up to eight warheads, but they're not loaded to that extent. New START controls this somewhat. Most of the warheads currently deployed are on the submarines. They are the most survivable leg of the arsenal. So there's really a lot of nuclear weapons. So the Trident nuclear sub or whatever the nuclear sub is called now, one submarine has the ability to wipe out at least 24 cities. One submarine. No, it's more. Let's say they're loaded out at five warheads per missile. 24 missiles times five warheads is 120 cities. So one submarine could take out 120 cities. And is the targeting, Greg, in the submarine such that they are independently targeted? In other words, are they targeting multiple different places in one submarine? 
Yes, they are. Of course, targeting is super classified. Members of Congress really don't know what they're targeting even. There's a limit to the flexibility of the different targets. So the missile, they all have to be kind of close to each other, especially sideways on the trajectory. So you can't have one target on one side of a country and you know another on the other. But yes, they are independently targeted. I mean, when you hear all of this, Greg, it seems like complete, I don't know what the right word is, complete insanity. It's totally insane. The idea that the U.S. needs more nuclear missiles because it only has whatever you said, 5,700 that exist, 2,450 are operational, 1,900 or so are held in reserve and can be made operational quickly. One submarine can take out 120 cities, just one submarine. And now we're going to spend billions, hundreds of billions, maybe a trillion, maybe more than a trillion dollars for more? Yes. When you say it like that, it really highlights the utter madness of it. And it's hard to believe that the American people are willing to let this go. I mean, where's the... (laughs) Where's the recognition of just how crazy this is? Well, I I think the American people aren't thinking about it. Hmm. I don't think they know about it. I mean, I'm guessing even the people who listen to this show regularly and, you know, they're, you know, more or less an informed part of the population. Very, very few people, which is one of the reasons why the Los Alamos study group that you help lead is so important because it provides the information. Very few people actually have the information. The information is so hair-raising. The idea that here we are in 2023, where the U.S. government five years ago said major power conflict and preparation for it is now the top military priority of the United States. Number one priority, which means contingency planning, wargaming, budgeting, weapons development, We're getting ready for major war, and major war means, major power conflict means conflict with other nuclear powers. So now, having done that, almost without debate, I don't remember any hue and cry in Congress or in the mass media that major power conflict is now the top U.S. military priority for the Pentagon. So now, having done that, having adopted that as a consensus position, all of the other decisions, sub-decisions start to fall into place, again, without information, without knowledge, and without any debate, even from the people who are the most liberal members of Congress. Absolutely. That is exactly right. And the effect on all of our institutions of these priorities is you know, very staggering. Yeah. Let's talk about what it would mean for this new industrial mission for Los Alamos National Laboratories. And again, just for people who are new to this, what is the Los Alamos National Laboratory? What's been its role historically in the evolution of the U.S. nuclear weapons program? Well, Los Alamos National Laboratory was founded in late 42 or early 43 as part of the Manhattan Project as the place where the final design of the first nuclear weapons was going to be done and the final assembly. It was thought at first that it would just take a handful of people, and it immediately started outgrowing itself over and over and over again during World War II. Somewhere along the way, very early for the General Groves, who was head of the Manhattan Project, but it became clear that this wasn't about Japan or Germany anymore. It was about Russia. So Los Alamos built a pit factory, a factory for making nuclear weapons cores that came online, that was not going to come online until October of 1945. So it did. And for a brief time, it had an industrial mission, but the directors of Los Alamos begged the Atomic Energy Commission to get rid of that mission, which was dirty and dangerous. And they thought, and we would agree, ill-suited for the location, which was quite isolated. So fast forward to now, because Los Alamos had and had, it doesn't really have that anymore, research and development capability 
for new kinds of weapon cores or pits, that implies the ability to make pits in the ones and twos and up to 10 or 11 in a demonstration project that took place from 2007 to 2011. So they had an old facility. It's very crowded. It's not safe. And Los Alamos management and the New Mexico congressional delegation represented that Los Alamos could become a factory at a cheap price and it could happen quickly. Well, the quickly part was crucial to selling this to congressional hawks. And the Democrats had a slightly, most of them were also hawks, but some thought, well, we'll just have this Goldilocks-sized factory here. We won't put a factory over there in Lindsey Graham state. We hate Lindsey Graham, so we don't want him to have a factory. So even though they had just built a brand new, modern, large facility for handling plutonium for another purpose, and they decided not to do that for other purpose, leaving that building kind of orphaned without a mission. So to remodel that building and build up the workforce and the ancillary capabilities is going to take until the 2030s, the mid-2030s, let's say. So they didn't know that at the time. So Los Alamos said, well, we can do this right now. And so now there's two pit factories. One is actively being put together here, cobbled together out of old facilities, old waste management, old plutonium facility. And one is in the planning stage down there in South Carolina. I think that within a month or two, they're going to start some site work. And the cost of all this is double. It suits the Hawks just fine. Under Trump, they were able to kind of blackmail Trump over Ukraine, actually, to increase the budget enough to pay for all this, or so they thought. But the budget just keeps on increasing. Los Alamos is particularly expensive because everything is very expensive at Los Alamos. And instead of having some kind of a small facility that was more or less ready to go, it turns out that it's very far from ready to go. It's unsafe. The old waste management facilities have to be replaced. They don't have offices. They don't have parking. They don't know how to get people up to the laboratory, which is just as isolated today as it was in 1940s. So as a result, Congress is now nervously realizing that they're investing in two factories simultaneously. One is going to be delayed even longer than they thought, and the other one is going to be delayed a year or two beyond what they thought, at least, if it ever is able to start at all because of the longstanding safety issues which the Department of Energy and its nuclear warhead subsidiary, NNSA, they don't want to fix the safety issues. They don't want to even talk about them because some of them are unfixable. So it's a mess from the management perspective. And the mess has been created by a you know combination of pork barrel interests, a kind of con that said we needed these new pits. And Really, the actual crisis is the collapse of the narrative of dominance in the face of a multipolar world. And that narrative battle is being played out in the pit production world. And so now, pits made here, if they succeed in making any, are going to cost more than $50 million apiece, which will make the warheads really unaffordable. But Congress hasn't figured that out yet. And it's hard to know how they're going to back out of this. They'll find a way. But a lot of damage could be done between now and then. And Los Alamos Study Group, your organization, you've been playing a role exposing this and having some impact in terms of how things are playing out in Congress and elsewhere. Talk about that. Yes. Well, this is their fifth plan at Los Alamos. And the other previous four have collapsed. We litigated one to death, their biggest one, in 2010-2012 timeframe. The others have collapsed from 
basically exposing how stupid they were. Los Alamos is not good at putting actual plans and structures and programs together. And so their hopes often collide with the realities of the site and with safety. And getting that information to Congress is very valuable. And the military actually is often the one that pulls the plug. They see it, you know, they're practical people. So it was the military was involved in stopping the last pit factory because the price tag, once the seismic issues were taken into account, was exceeding $150,000 per square foot. Per square foot. Yeah. How much has the United States spent on nuclear weapons since 1942, since the U.S. embarked on this program? Oh, geez. I haven't added that up recently. That's a good question. Uh, $10 trillion ballpark. $10 trillion. Yeah. This was this industry was the size of the car industry, of the automobile industry in the United States. And even now, they're hiring like mad. There's approximately 60,000 people making warheads alone, not counting the missiles and the submarines and the bombers. So since its inception, since 1942, right? So that's where we're 80 years now, right? 81 years. Mm-hmm. The U.S. has spent $10 trillion on nuclear weapons, used nuclear weapons actively. I don't mean, you know, using them to threaten people. They've done that lots of times. But actively, actually using a nuclear warhead. That's happened twice in 1945 in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Since that time, the U.S., again, has spent whatever, another $9 trillion dollars amassing thousands of warheads, which, if used, will create nuclear winter and end civilization or human life as we know it, and animal life and plant life as well. The management and competence of the drivers of this budgeting, as you're pointing out, you know, they're not getting an A+. They're not even getting a C+. They might be getting a D or an F because so many of their programs have to be discontinued because they're poorly managed, poorly thought through. So you have incompetence, but huge amounts of money, $10 trillion going to create weapons, which have only been used twice in the history of modern warfare. And if used again, would mean the end of human life as we know it. When you put all of those things together, and again, I want to go back to the absence of debate, When you put all of that together, none of it seems rational, even in the most far-stretched sort of ways, wargaming ways that you might think about it. But maybe the bottom line, Greg, maybe the bottom line is money. Maybe it's all about money, in essence. I mean, maybe the politics, the national security issues, the geostrategic issues, the politics in Congress, maybe that's all just BS. Maybe that's really based sort of as a pretext or as a a contrived pretext of arguments justifying a form of welfare for the arms industry and all of the attendant subdivisions of the arms industry, both in academia, in industry, et cetera, to produce things that people actually can't use. And if they were to be used, people would need them even less because there would be no more people or no more human civilization. I mean, like if you think about it in its totality, that's actually what it appears to me to be sort of an endless sort of cash cow for something that's irrational, insane, and hasn't, you know, $10 trillion, I mean, and you've used the weapon twice. Anyway, go ahead. Sure. Well, that's, I think, quite right. All of the national security and nuclear BS that you hear really covers up something else which is really being able to have our way with other countries. And why is that? Well, it comes back to resources, markets, money. The con here is so broad and it, you know, it's supported by phrases like capability-based deterrence. That's the idea that the more money you spend on the factories and the workforce, that itself creates peace. That's one of the elements of the pitch. 
Of course, around here, they say it brings economic development, even though New Mexico is at the absolute last place at the bottom of all the states in the welfare of its children, in education, and really bottom bounces in terms of poverty. They want these pits in order to have something to do in the nuclear weapons complex in the late 2020s and in the 2030s. So, and more workers they hire, the more of a crisis they have because they'll have these workers that won't have anything to do if they don't have the stream of new weapons to make. So, it, yes, it ends up becoming uh, the proverbial self licking ice cream cone. We're all aware of the dangers of radiation poisoning. In 1963, the Soviet Union and the United States signed the Test Ban Treaty, which banned atmospheric tests. And just for people who are a little bit younger, up until then, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, as they were involved in this arms race, were both testing atomic bombs, hydrogen bombs, all kinds of nuclear warheads out in the open, either in deserts or elsewhere. I mean, in the, where you are, Greg, in that part of the country, a lot of nuclear bombs were set off in the United States. The United States bombed itself in a way through nuclear test bombings. And, you know, a lot of people died. A lot of people got sick. And so there was a high consciousness that this atmospheric testing of nuclear bombs was killing people and very detrimental and in 1963, the two countries, U.S. and the USSR, signed a test ban treaty, and that changed the way nuclear testing was conducted. So in some ways, perhaps, the fear of nuclear or radiation poisoning from nuclear weapons, in some ways, it's kind of diminished as a public item, as a public agenda item. But with every nuclear weapon that's built that has to be tested and other tests are taking place and other nuclear weapons grade material is being used all over the place. And there is something called nuclear waste. Like there's nuclear garbage afterwards. Where is it? Where do people put it? Is it close to where we live? I mean, again, this is something that the American public doesn't know anything about. Where is the nuclear waste? Well, at Los Alamos, there's between 10 and 20,000, closer to 20,000, drum equivalents of so-called transuranic waste sitting on a mesa on the east side of Los Alamos Lab, just above the Rio Grande. It's waiting to go off-site to some salt beds near Carlsbad. But getting some of the transportation packages certified is difficult because they don't actually know what's in some of the older drums. And since there's nuclear waste at lots of sites, Hanford in Washington State, the Idaho National Laboratory, Oak Ridge, Savannah Riverside, a little bit in Livermore, all these sites are competing for space in the sole waste disposal site in southern New Mexico. So at Los Alamos, there's so much new waste from the process of designing nuclear weapons and changing out, ripping out the contaminated equipment to put in hundreds of glove boxes and new pieces of equipment to set up these production lines, that the old waste sits there. It's been sitting there for about a quarter of a century now in tents, about a, you know, 100 yards from the San Ildefonso Pueblo and Native American reservation. So, yes, it's around. The waste is around. Some of it is slowly being buried. Los Alamos Lab now wants to open up another underground on-site disposal facility for so-called low-level waste. And I can't get the news media to grasp that as an issue. It's literally an explosive issue, and they don't want to touch it because, of course, it's uh, you know the golden goose and all that, or plutonium goose. So, no, we don't talk about it a great deal in this country. It's all still going on, and it's kind of ramping up again. And that's all about major power conflict, like you said. So that said, this is not the same kind of direct health effect that nuclear testing was. 
in a way, it's kind of a, a symptom of the larger danger. Let's talk for a second about other sort of outcomes from committing, being so committed to nuclear weapons. And again, $10 trillion spent. The U.S. has whatever, 9,000 or 7,000 weapons, 2,450 are deployed, another 1,900 ready to be deployed, submarines that can wipe out 120 cities, one submarine. And there's nuclear waste, there's radiation poisoning, there's also nuclear accidents. I'm looking at this, I was looking for it in preparation for this show, Greg, January 17th, 2023 will be the 67th anniversary of when the U.S. mistakenly dropped hydrogen bombs on Spain. I'm going to read to you from history.com. B-52 bomber collides with KC-135 jet tanker over Spain's Mediterranean coast, dropping three 70-kiloton hydrogen bombs near the town of Palomares and one landed in the ocean. It was not the first or last accident involving American nuclear bombs. As a means of maintaining first strike capability during the Cold War, U.S. bombers laden with nuclear weapons circled the Earth ceaselessly for decades. In a military operation of this magnitude, it was inevitable that accidents would occur. The Pentagon admits to more than three dozen that's 36, accidents in which bombers either crashed or caught fire on the runway, resulting in nuclear contamination from a damaged or destroyed bomb and the loss of a nuclear weapon. One of the only, quote, broken arrows, close quote, I guess that's a broken nuclear bomb, to receive widespread publicity occurred on January 17, 1966, when a B-52 bomber crashed into a KC-135 jet tanker over Spain. The bomber was returning to its North Carolina base following a routine airborne alert mission, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, obviously, Greg, the bombs did not detonate. I don't know if there's a reason for that, but that's pretty big, dropping three hydrogen bombs on Spain by mistake. Anyway, let's talk about that. Yes, it is. (laughs) Yes, so there, yeah, there were, uh, like you said, roughly three dozen broken arrow accidents. There were certainly one a few miles from me here where a bomber lurched on uh, final approach coming into Kirtland Air Force Base, and a crew member was back in the bomb bay putting an extra mechanical catch there because of very large hydrogen bomb, very heavy. And the plane lurched. He lost his footing and was close to falling into the bottom of the bomb bay with the bomb. And he grabbed the nearest thing, which happened to be the release cable. And so this large hydrogen bomb fell a little bit south of Albuquerque here. The high explosives detonated, but it did not have its pit in it. And so it did not make a megaton level explosion here. So, yep, it happened. There were some pretty bad accidents. California, lots of places. There, I think there's a hydrogen bomb still in a swamp in South Carolina, I think. They could never find it. Yeah, where's that hydrogen bomb, guys? Oh, all right, we're going to look for it again. Well, the same thing about the nuclear hydrogen bombs in Spain. Here's, again, from the History Channel. The KC-135 exploded, killing all four of its crew members, but four members of the seven-man B-52 crew managed to parachute to safety. None of the bombs were armed, but explosive material in two of the bombs that fell to Earth exploded upon impact, forming craters and scattering radioactive plutonium over the fields of the village in the nearby area. A third bomb landed in a dry riverbed and was recovered relatively intact. The fourth bomb fell into the sea at an unknown location. So like that other one, just missing in action, that nuclear hydrogen bomb missing in action. But, you know, it just speaks to the inevitability of disaster. I mean, 
It's inevitable because whether it's by design or by accident, you're playing with fire, a very big fire. Yes. People may think that these weapons are under control completely, but a couple of times, well, more, let's see, I can think of three, we came very close to launching a nuclear war on basis of bad information. Well, maybe if there's four, I think if we sat down here and we'd think of more. But two times, Russian officers decided to countermand orders and not use a nuclear weapon when when others either ordered them to, in the case of an ICBM field or during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the political officer on a submarine was the sole member of the decision team that refused to use a nuclear torpedo. The submarine was being depth bombed by U.S. destroyer, and they were losing air down there. They were in a very bad way, and it was due to one man who did not succumb to the pressures of the moment that the Soviets didn't use a nuclear weapon to sink U.S. ships during the blockade of Cuba. So that kind of accident is even more alarming by a you know large scale, that sort of thing. I mean, in Russia, for example, they're so concerned, and rightly so, we people here talk about a decapitating first strike. Well, let's take out Putin, who said this recently. Someone recently said, maybe we should have a decapitating first strike. Well, Russia has a system called perimeter, which is a so-called dead hand system. They don't need a president to launch their nuclear weapons. There are humans in the loop, but if there are nuclear detonations on Russian soil and enough sensors are triggered, then rockets go up that will send a radio signal to the ICBM force to launch. And I think people are very naive if they think that the president of the United States is the only person who can order a launch of U.S. nuclear weapons, since Washington, D.C. is so very close to the ocean. And there would be almost no warning if someone decided to blow up Washington, D.C. from a surface ship or a submarine off the coast of east coast of the United States. So these nuclear weapons are in effect on a hair trigger all the time. That's kind of what deterrence means in the modern world. It's a sort of a technological imperative, especially with ICBMs, since their positions are known. Presumably, the Russians are targeting them, maybe. The assumption is they are. So they should be fired then before the missiles arrive, and the Russians will make the same calculation. So that the risk of nuclear war is really a lot greater than people realize. During the Cold War, there were mechanisms to check this. People were talking more. There was more military-to-military interaction. Now the Russians don't trust us at all, and nearly all of these channels are no longer extant. Greg, I want to talk about the Ukraine war and what role it's playing in the growing danger of nuclear conflict. We've spent a lot of time on this show talking about the logic of escalation that's sort of baked into the conflict because NATO is determined to win and the Russians are determined not to lose. The logic there leads in the direction of escalation. And again, these are the major nuclear powers. And by the way, on Saturday, January 14th, this coming Saturday, we're going to have a major protest at Times Square in New York City at 12 noon about this. And there will be a sister action in San Francisco and some other actions around the country. But I'm looking at the front page of Foreign Affairs Magazine, which is the voice, the organ of the Council on Foreign Relations, one of the leading ruling class think tanks in America. Here's the headline, the front number one story in foreign affairs today, the long war in Ukraine, the West needs to plan for a protracted conflict with Russia. Like, not that we should plan for negotiating or peace or ending the war, Get ready for a protracted conflict. There's no sense of doom or gloom here. It's just like, let's do it. Let's get ready. And, you know, when you think about what triggered this war, the Russian military invasion into Ukraine, 
like it or loathe it, and I don't think many people are supporting Russia's decision to invade Ukraine, we certainly thought we were very unhappy that Russia had taken the decision. We thought it strengthens NATO in Europe. On the other hand, we also have made the case, and we've done it, I think, very convincingly, that the reason Russia took this dramatic action, knowing that the consequences would be an attempt to evict Russia from the world economy through sanctions, was that Russia felt an existential threat by NATO expansion into Ukraine such that the U.S. slash NATO could put advanced missiles, including nuclear missiles, in Ukraine that would have Russia or Russian targets all over Russia and with you know a relatively short flight time, a very short flight time, not relatively, in an absolute way, a short flight time to their Russian targets, missiles that the Russians couldn't, once they were there on their border, wouldn't really be able to defend against. And so I think Russia decided to pull the trigger first to try to get, you know, to prevent the U.S. and NATO from having a de facto sort of situation where even if Ukraine wasn't in NATO formally, it would have the same outcome. And the reason I'm raising that is in 1981-82, when Reagan came into office, the U.S., surrounded, encircled the Soviet Union with intermediate range missiles. They were called Pershing II missiles. They had a flight time of, I don't know, five or six or seven minutes to their target. And the targets were like every Soviet political office in the Soviet Union. In other words, a decapitation strategy. And the Soviets thought war was coming. And you know there was really a great sense of possible war in the early part of the first Reagan administration. And then That resulted in 1986 when Gorbachev and Reagan and Iceland signed this treaty that banned these kind of intermediate range missiles. But now the U.S. has canceled that treaty. It canceled the anti-ballistic missile treaty that it had signed with the Soviet Union. Bush did that in 2002. The U.S. is getting rid of all of the architecture of arms agreements so that there's no management of the rivalry, even on the nuclear level. And then you have headlines in the Council on Foreign Relations magazine say, let's get ready for protracted conflict with Russia. It's as if the doctrine of major power conflict seeks to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And and that that when you put that in the context of what we've talked about on this show, about the danger of nuclear war, I mean, I really think people don't have a clue about how grave this situation actually is. I couldn't agree more. The root of it may be the poor quality, and I'm using this term independent of ideology, the poor quality of the policymakers in D.C. Under Reagan, there were at least some realists who realized that it's not in our interest to existentially threaten Russia. So there was you know, discussion in that administration, and eventually the Reagan administration was able to make some arms control breakthroughs, as you said. Now, those voices are gone, and we just have these, I'm sorry, these punks who think that Russia's weak, Russia's a pushover. Their early careers occurred during the Yeltsin period. After Fukuyama's end of history, you know, they thought that the normative state of affairs is that the United States should be the unipower controlling the world. And I've heard speeches from people saying, oh, Russia's, you know, just an economy the size of Texas, nothing to worry about, the gas station masquerading as a country. So there's both an underestimation of what Russia is culturally, economically, politically, as well as an overestimation of what the United States is in all those dimensions. Neither of those things are accurately viewed. And so they don't see any danger in a protracted conflict with a major nuclear power. They think that they can threaten China with impunity at the same time. You know, it's nuts. And unless those people are removed from office, basically, this situation is going to get 
I can't see any way, but what is going to get a lot worse. So what happens when the Ukrainian army collapses? Do we then send in a coalition of the willing? What happens then? I mean, there's, it's difficult to write a very happy story around what's happening now with the current leadership in Washington. I think your point is well taken. I think Ronald Reagan, who we all consider to be, you know, when Reagan was elected, I think a lot of people who were progressive, well, let's say people who were to the, I don't know, left of Mussolini, <laughs> they would have thought, wow, Ronald Reagan, president of the United States, you can't get more right wing than that because he was so right wing. Yeah, that's what yeah. I thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of people thought that. And now if Reagan talking with Gorbachev and making the arms deal in Iceland in 1986, a treaty that has now been canceled and not none of the not the Democrats or other Republicans want to bring it back. Reagan taking that position in 1986 would be sort of on the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. Again, this just shows the the trajectory of American politics in the era where militarism and U.S. capitalism have become so wedded together and the desire, the arrogance, the hubris of American policymakers, these people who haven't, you know, rich kids who grew up rich, you know, became ever richer and now have lots of influence and power in government. They think they can boss the whole world around. So they're completely not realistic. They reject realism. Henry Kissinger, too, like Reagan, seems to be like the voice of reason, which seems incredible given the fact that we all considered Henry Kissinger to be like the worst war criminal walking the face of the planet in 1970, 71, which of course he might have been. Mm -hmm. But today, but today he sounds like the voice of reason. Anyway, this is the big issue, one of the biggest issues in the world today, Greg. And I want to thank you and thank the folks at the Los Alamos Study Group for the work that you do. We're very, very happy you were able to, to join us once again. I do want to encourage all of the people listening to this show to go to your website, Los Alamos Study Group website, which is L, like Los Alamos, L-A-S-G dot org. And Greg, people can subscribe to your bulletin or a newsletter? Yes, they can. All right. Well, I want to encourage everyone, become informed so that we can let our coworkers, our neighbors, our family, our friends know what's actually going on. Los Alamos Study Group, these folks are the anti-nuclear nuclear experts in the United States. And I just want to thank you, Greg, for all of your work. And, and again, look forward to having you come back here on The Socialist Program. Thank you so much, Brian, and I'm ready anytime. Thanks so much. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.